nine weeks, a nine-week journey that we're concluding today at the end of Revelation. So I'm not going to dive in right away, but I'm going to tell you we're going to be in the last two chapters, okay? Revelation 21 and 22 is where we're going to be today. So if you've got a God-ordained physical copy of a Bible, you can turn there right now. Not that I have anything against the phone copies, but I never know what you guys are doing on those phones. <laughs> so you can get ready for that. In the meantime, I've got a question for you. And I want you to honestly think about it, okay? I want you to think about it and have an answer in your mind. Uh, because that's the answer. That answer to this question is going to kind of carry you through the rest of this message. So the question is, very simply, what do you want the most? Okay. What do you want the most? Some of you right now are thinking, and the answer to the question that you're coming up with is sleep. If you're a parent of younger kids, that might be your answer, sleep, uh, energy, rest, okay? Might be something like that. Maybe it's financial security. Uh, it could be whatever is most pressing on your mind right now, uh, less stress in your life, I'm not sure. It could be if there's a problem that you want that problem to be solved. It could be that if you are lonely, that you are longing for companionship in one way or another, uh, some kind of community, uh, that could be what is firing off in your mind right now. Maybe you're just thinking about lunch. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not judging you. I say, what do you want most? And you think, tacos. No, that was not my answer. That was number two, okay? That was number two. Uh, number one was coffee. But seriously, what do you want the most? How, how often have you spent time thinking about this? Now, what do you most want? This question can drive us in life sometimes. It can drive us... Uh, in our decision-making, and it can drive our finances, it can drive an awful lot. But here's the reason why I want to get your mind thinking about this question and the answer to this question today is because of the main thing. Okay, so if you've got notes, I want you to open up those notes right here is the main thing of today's message, and I don't want you to miss it. We are headed for what we've always been longing for. Okay? We're headed for what we've always been longing for. And you might be sitting here thinking, Pastor Steve, are you telling me that at the end of Revelation, we're headed for a land with endless tacos and coffee? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's some deeper desires than that, right, that, that we can uh, talk about and interact with today because that's the reality of the situation, okay? So here's, here's why it's important to think about this. Because so often, and, and nod your head if, if you identify with this, so often life is unsatisfying. Is it not? And, and maybe you're thinking that today, and, and things are pretty good, and, and that's fine. But even when things are pretty good, haven't you found in your life, have you ever looked forward to something so much 
and then the thing that you looked forward to actually happens. And in the middle of experiencing that thing that you've been looking forward to, you think, yeah, I mean, it's good, but it's not quite, it's not quite what the buildup was. It's not quite what I thought it was going to be. Right? Before I say this, I need to say, I love my wife. But don't you experience this a little bit as you get married? Right? People get engaged. And you're like, man, I cannot wait to be married for one reason or another, and I'm not going to state the reasons. But (laughs) you can't wait to be married. And then you get married, and first of all, the day's exhausting. Nobody tells you that. It's like it'd be the greatest day of your life. This is the most exhausting day of my life, right? And you get done with it. You're like, all right, we're finally here. We're married on the honeymoon. And then how many people, I've seen stories, people on the honeymoon, they get sick on the honeymoon, right? Because their body's like, okay, we're done with the stress. Now we're going to allow every virus that you've been touching to run its course, right? And then, but maybe that goes well, but then you get a couple of years in and it's like, man, this isn't quite what I hoped it would be. A lot of things in life end up working that way. And here's why, because everything that you want, everything that I want is found primarily in Jesus. Now, I know some of you don't believe me. You think, Really? Everything I want is found in Jesus? Yes, it is. Because we are headed for what we've always been longing for. Let's jump in. Revelation chapter 21. We've seen a lot of things in Revelation. We've seen a lot of crazy images. We've seen a lot of worship We've seen all these things, and even so, as we round this out, I want to remind you of what our interpretive rule is for these last two chapters still, okay? Our interpretive rule is this. The plain things are the main things. The plain things are the main things. This is what helps us derive the blessing from Revelation that God intends us to derive. Okay, so let's begin reading Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's exciting. Can we just stop there for a moment? Isn't that exciting? Just those opening words right there. How many of you thought, right, as we've experienced, maybe this life isn't super as satisfying as we thought it would be, and we get to this place where we're like, man, is this really all there is? And I'm telling you, with these few words, we know the answer to that question. This is not all there is. There is something more coming. Actually, there's something new coming. That should excite you. It excites me. Does it excite you? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, right? This is a reference to the fact, not that water itself is bad, but that in ancient Near Eastern literature, you've even seen this in Revelation, right? The beast came from where? The sea, right? Sea is this chaotic place uh, full of torment uh, where chaos and evil comes from, right? It's saying the source of evil of all things chaotic will be gone, Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I saw a loud, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay. Here's number one of your notes. God is doing something new. In this future date, as history comes to a close, as Jesus defeats his enemies, right, defeats the enemies of earth, defeats Satan, defeats the beasts, defeats uh, death and Hades, as this is happening, we get the picture of what God is doing, right? I told you that God's judgment is not an end in of itself. It's a means to an end. And here, for the first time, we see the beginning of the explanation of what the end is. And the end is new heaven and new earth. But that's, see, if you're anything like me, if you read the Bible like me, you think, why, why is that new? What's new about it, right? It's not simply new as in it came after the old stuff. That's not what new here is intended to mean. What new here is intended to mean is unprecedented, uh, unimagined before, totally new, right? God has done this before. He's used this word to describe what he's doing. I want you to look at Leviticus 26 on the screen. Okay, Leviticus 26 verse 11 says this, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. See, he's been hinting at this for a long time. In the Old Testament, this looked like the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies that was there among them. But even then, they couldn't just walk into the Holy of Holies willy-nilly, right? It was one person, one time, one time a year, they'd dress a certain way. I don't know if you remember when I did this sermon, but I brought Micah Waller up here and I dressed him up and sprayed him in the face with water just because I wanted to. <laughs> but the point is, God's been hinting at this for quite a while. Let's look at this again in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. Okay, what else does he mean when he's talking about new? Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, new with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. Here's this little phrase again. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. New. New. Unimagined. Unprecedented. New heaven, new earth, uh, but here is, yeah, here it is. We were made to live with God. We were made to live with God. This is what he's doing. So what is the new thing? Here's 1B. What is the new thing? He's moving in. That's the new thing. Right? I thought, how can I say this in a way that will really capture it for us 
uh, I'm saying this. New heaven, new earth, right? Though those of us who die during this life before Jesus comes back go to heaven, right? That's actually not where the story ends. Do you know this? The story doesn't end in heaven because God brings heaven down to us. The movement is here, right? Jesus says, thy kingdom come. And we see it here in Revelation 21. It said, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Here's how I want to say it. God's moving in. This is the new thing. God is moving in, which is a really good thing because we were made to live with God. We were made to live with him. Look at Hebrews 11 with me on the screen. Hebrews 11. You guys remember this chapter? What's it called? The, like the hall of faith, right? And what's interesting about this hall of faith is all of these people looking toward the same thing. So this is verse 10. It says, for he was, for he was looking forward. This is in reference to Abraham. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Okay? Now fast forward to verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. That's interesting. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Why? Because they're longing for something else. Verse 16, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And I think for a long time, we have thought, okay, yeah, so when I die, I go to that city. No, not according to Revelation. According to Revelation, Jesus defeats all of the enemies first. He returns, reigns for a thousand years, defeats all of the enemies in the correct order, in the prophesied order, and then, after all that is complete, new heaven, new earth. God moves in with his people, which if you think about all of the things that had to take place in order for people to be close to God, that's remarkable. But now, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the future, it's what we're headed for. So I want to give you a description now, okay, as we continue on. For the rest of this sermon, for the most part, I'm going to be answering one simple question. Um, where, what is it like where God lives? Okay? So number two there is where God lives, and then we're going to answer and finish that sentence and that statement as we look at the rest of this passage today. So number two there, write that in, where God lives, where God lives, and here is number one, there is no reason to weep. Where God lives, there is no reason to weep. As I go through these statements, by the way, uh, let it capture your imagination. Let it capture your heart. Because truthfully, we live in a world right now where there are plenty of reasons to weep. Are there not? We're headed for what we've always been longing for. We're going to live where God lives. And where God lives, there is no reason to weep. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's what a father does. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new, unprecedented, unimagined. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious, meaning those who are faithful, right? Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, meaning unrepentant, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Okay? Where God lives, there's no reason to weep. Evil is eternally quarantined where God lives. Evil is eternally quarantined. It is set aside forever uh, from where God lives, which means there will be no reason to weep. Uh, As we get older, we realize that this life is full of reasons to weep, particularly if you live in places where evil is less restrained, right? We live in the United States of America. Evil is fairly restrained here. It's, believe me, evil is here, right? It's absolutely here. Rears its ugly head in a lot of different ways. But there's, are there not places on earth where it's less restrained? There, of course, are places on earth where it's less restrained. This is why it's important for us, by the way, to, if we can, to hang out and be a part of question and answer sessions with missionaries because we learn this reality. Many of them serve in places where evil is less restrained. And we get a picture of what evil unrestrained in this world really looks like. There's a verse in the Bible. It's Matthew 2.18. It's right at the beginning of Jesus' life. He's still a baby. And Herod is trying to go after him. And he gives an order to have all the firstborn sons killed. And that order is executed. And it says this in Matthew 2.18. It said, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I'm not sure, for me personally, I'm not sure if there is a greater example of unrestrained evil than when children are dying. That, that to me is, anyone dying is terrible, but th- that is absolutely crazy. And listen to this. According to the organization Bread for the World, 16,000 children die every day from hunger-related causes. Can you imagine being their parents? Other children die from illnesses, accidents, and as victims of violence and injustice. This sound, the sound in Ramah, the sound of Matthew 2.18 is heard today. Weeping mothers and fathers over their children. But listen, not where God lives. That sound will not be heard where God lives because this will not happen anymore. We long for the end of these kinds of days, okay? Every time I go to a funeral, I think the same thing. One day, one day, there will be a last funeral. We go to a funeral, and, and, and it's good, right, for us to support those who are grieving. But every time I go to a funeral, I think the same thing. I don't want to be here. 
Neither does anybody else. This feels wrong. It feels against what I'm wired with. And that's true because we're all wired for eternity. Ecclesiastes says that man is forever in his heart, right? This is what we are made for, right? To live forever with God. And yet I'm at this funeral representing the end of someone's life and there's weeping and there's mourning. And God says, not where I live. Where I live, there are no funerals. Where I live, there are no weeping. When I live, where I live, all of those things have passed away. Where God lives, there is no reason to weep. Psalm 126.5 says, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. It's one of my favorite verses because this is the fulfillment of that verse. Those who sow in tears in this life work in tears, live in tears, mourn in tears, will reap with songs of joy. Why? Because they're going to live where God lives, and where God lives, there's no reason to weep. Let's continue on, okay? Where God lives, number two, it is breathtakingly beautiful, okay? Where God lives, it is breathtakingly beautiful, all right? Um, How many of us, by show of hands, the last time that you saw a really great sunset or a sunrise, you took a picture of it and posted it on social media? More than a few hands, and I'm willing to bet there's more than a few people in here who are not admitting that they do it too. And I'm not judging you for that at all because I've done the same exact thing. There's a reason we do that. Right? I'm talking about a striking one. I'm talking about a sunset that just has so many colors in it that you, you just see it outside of the window and you pause. You're caught. You might even forget what you're doing. You're like, wow. Right? If you've got family in the house, you might say, look at this. Take a look at this. The reason that we do that is because we, we are made for life with God. And did you know that God is exceedingly beautiful? Did you know that he and his character and his creation, exceedingly beautiful? Well, this is beyond our imagination. Imagine with me now as I read verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, coming down out of heaven from God to be here. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall, a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. It's about 1,400 miles. That's pretty long. And as wide and as high as it is long, that means it's a cube. 
okay? The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. Okay, you getting a picture here? Now, some scholars believe that this is symbolic, representative of the people of God. Could be, could also be literal. But just imagine the wonder of it, right? Just to give you a picture, if this cube were sitting on the United States of America, and we started from here in Shelby, and we went west, you would have to draw a line from here in Shelby all the way west to Bozeman, Montana, and then south from Bozeman, Montana to a city called Hermosillo, Mexico. And then you'd have to draw a line from Hermosillo, Mexico east to Mobile, Alabama, and then back up here to Shelby to contain this cube. Just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. The wall was made, this is verse 18, the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Bear with me, I'm going to give these a try. The first foundation was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third was agate, the fourth was emerald, the fifth was oinx, the, fi- the sixth was ruby, the seventh was chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. Um, Can you say it with me? That's breathtakingly beautiful. It's beautiful. Can you imagine living a life where you are constantly surrounded by that kind of beauty? We will. We will live a life where we are that surrounded by beauty, and it's because we're going to live where God lives. And where God lives, it's breathtakingly beautiful. We long for that. About number three, where God lives, there is no temple. Where God lives, there is no temple. You think, well, what is significant about that? This is kind of the ball game right here, okay? Verse 22, John speaking, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Okay, very unusual for a city not to have a temple, especially at this time. Very unusual, right? Because for the people of God, a city and a temple, the temple would be a temple to Yahweh, right? So, but in every other city, it would be a temple to what? False gods, right? All over the place. Very unusual for a city not to have a temple. Why? Because a temple is like the access point. It's the interaction point between the people of that city and the God of that city. Except in this city, the one that we're headed for, there is no temple. Because God is the temple. And here's what it's saying. There will be no separation here. We're living with God. Can you imagine this? 
I want you to imagine for a moment that you're walking down the streets of the new city. All of the troubles of this life behind you. You're just taking a stroll with somebody that you know. And then you see like a little commotion down a particular street. And you look down there and say, wow, what's going on over there? Oh, Jesus is over there. It's like that. Jesus hanging out right there. Can you imagine? This, this is what we're headed for. Jesus hanging out all the time. He's with her. Why? Because he lives there. That's where he lives. You live where Jesus lives. Right? Isn't that an amazing thing? How many times in this life have you felt like there is this silent separation between you and God? That you long for a sense of his presence, but for some reason in that moment, it's dryness. And you get down on your knees and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and it still feels dry. And you open up the word, and it still feels dry because you're just in that kind of season. And you are just longing for one moment to be present with Jesus. Well, in the life that we're headed for, in the world that we're headed for, those moments will be no more because he's going to be right there. No more long nights of prayer, desperately seeking after one moment of his presence when his presence is going to be your address. No more because there's no temple in this place. Jesus right there in the flesh forever. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. How many times have I thought, man, I just need to get a coffee with Jesus, right? If he could just, just five minutes, ask him a couple of pointed questions, right? Maybe I'll have less questions then, but we'll see. But the point is, I get to do that. That's where God lives. There's no temple. Let's continue on number four. Where God lives, there is no danger, Okay, Where God lives, there's no danger. Can you imagine living in a place where you don't have to feel nervous about anything ever? Do you live in that place right now? Right? How many of us have a security system on our homes? I'm not saying for bad reason, maybe for good reason, right? But where God lives, there's no danger. Let's read verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, this city, this gathering of people has a city wall, right? 144 cubits thick, right? And then gates, a lot of gates. How many gates do you remember? 12 gates. Here's the interesting thing about those gates. They're never closed. So what's the point of the wall? (laughs) Doesn't it make the wall a moot point? Hey, I got an idea. Uh, Lord, can you imagine like the planning for God's city? 
And they're like, okay, here's the deal, right? We're going to have all of these stones, all these pearls, right? Just start ordering them now because we're going to need them, guys. Okay, we're going to build this city, right? And I got an idea. Okay, what's your idea? My idea is that we have a wall. Great. Big, thick wall. How thick? 144 cubits thick, right? How many, how long, how many is that? 144 cubits thick. Uh, that is about 200 feet. Okay, 200 foot thick wall. Love where you're going with this. And it's like, okay, but get this. The gates never close. Really? Yeah, 200 foot thick wall, awesome. Really high, great. Gates never close. Don't understand that. Because there's no reason for them to close. A city at this time would close all of their gates on their wall because... When were they attacked? At night. So they'd close them at night. And the whole point is there's no night here, meaning there's no period of danger here, and there's no danger. You know, you can just welcome in the neighboring nations, those kings of the earth. I mean, what are they bringing with them? Who cares? They're in the Lamb's Book of Life. Bring them in. Go in and come out. Some people will say to you, they'll point to this and they'll say, hey, this is uh, the verse in the Bible that teaches that everybody gets to heaven no matter what, right? It's called like universal salvation. And so let me tell you, that's not what this verse is saying, okay? It's clear. The access point is the Lamb's book of life. Got to give your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to get in. That's the deal, okay? Because of our sin, that's how it works. What this verse is saying, though, is where God lives, there's no danger, right? Right now in your home, how many times, right, are you there and you see or hear something that makes you kind of shudder a little bit? Maybe the hairs on the back of your neck stick up, right, because you see somebody walking down the street and you don't know who they are exactly. Or maybe, uh, man, everything is dark outside and then you hear noises from outside. You're like, what is going on there, right? It makes us nervous because there are reasons to feel nervous where God lives. None of that. None of that. Rest easy. There's no danger where God lives. Where God lives, number five, there are no wounds. Where God lives, number five, there are no wounds, right? Here's what we mean, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, right? The Bible begins with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The Bible ends with the tree of life here in the new, new heavens and new earth of God. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of Say that word. The nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Uh, life is full of things that we wouldn't choose. Things that cause us pain. And pain feels permanent when it's in your life. Anybody feeling that right now? You've got a reason in your life to feel, man, you're feeling pain. You're feeling it right now. But when you're in it, it feels permanent. And what I'm telling you is it's not. 
Where God lives, there are no wounds. Here's what I mean. Where God lives, there are scars, right? Jesus has scars on his body, but they're not wounds because they're healed, right? The tree of life, each leaf is for the healing of the nations. I love what Pastor Dave brought up about the fact that this is not, doesn't say it's the healing for the people of Israel. It's the healing for everyone. Everyone gets healed where God lives, right? All kinds of wounds, physical wounds and other kinds of wounds. There is no reason for pain because where God lives, the tree of life gives healing and life to everyone, right? So if you're here today and you are feeling like I am going through a life of perpetual pain that doesn't stop and then maybe if it stops, it only stops for a little while and then more comes right after that. Many of us are in that place and I'm telling you, right, God's encouragement to you today is hold on because eventually you're going to live with me and where I live there's no wounds there's no pain there's only healing when you live with me your body will work the way it's supposed to it will not betray you your relationships will be pure and not be broken where God lives I'm going to jump a couple of verses, okay? Let's go to verse 7 in chapter 22. This is Jesus speaking now. So the Bible, so the Bible ends with Jesus' words, right? It says here, look, I am coming soon. Anybody excited for that? Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy written in this scroll. Okay, then jump to verse 12. Uh, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. You see a theme? When things are hard, life feels long. But trust me when I tell you, Jesus is coming soon. Soon. That's the hope that we have as Christians. We are headed for what we've always been longing for. Life that doesn't end without pain, without weeping, with healing, in the presence of God, with my physical body, worshiping Jesus, who is also there physically, by the way. This is what we've been longing for, and it's what we are headed for, and it's coming sooner than you think. So here's how we live then, okay? Here's how we live Good number three there. We have a powerful, practical hope. We have a powerful, practical hope. And here's what I mean. The hope that we have is powerful, but it isn't just imaginary and it's not just a wish. It's practical, means that it changes my life on a daily basis. If we get nothing else from Revelation, my friends, let's get this from Revelation. We have a hope that changes how we live every single day. How does it change how we live? Okay, look, number one, pray daily for the return of Jesus Christ. Scripture says that Jesus will come like a 
thief in the night. But did you know that right after that, in Thessalonians, right after that, it says that this day uh, will be a shock and a surprise to many people. It will not be a shock and a surprise to you, referring to believers. Why? Because the assumption is it's really hard to be surprised by something you're praying for every day. (laughs) It would be like, Lord, I'm just praying for you to heal my knee. Okay, Lord, if you could just bring relief to my knee, I would really appreciate it. And you pray for it every single day for like three weeks. And then finally, the prayer is answered and your knee is healed and you think, whoa. I did not see that coming. No, for the believer, every single day, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Because though I know I've got all these other requests, I know the ultimate answer to all these other requests is you coming back and us living with you. That's the ultimate answer to all these other requests. So therefore, I'm praying not only that you would help this surgery go well, not only that you would heal this cancer, not only that you would give comfort to this family that lost this loved one, but I'm praying that you will come back and if you could, you know, if you don't mind, make it today. You pray for that every single day when it happens, if it happens in our lifetime, which I would love that, would you love that? If it happens in our lifetime, it'd be really hard for us to say, I did not see that coming. No, it is our hope. It is what we're counting on. I put one foot in front of the other in this life because I'm counting on Jesus coming back. I'm counting on that. I'm counting on what it says in Revelation 21 and 22. I am counting on that being the future. That's how I'm living my life today. Pray for daily for the return of Jesus Christ. Here's number two. Dream about eternity. dream about eternity. It's very easy to get narrowly focused on this life. It's very easy to put the blinders on and just be consumed with the problems of this life and the things that we wouldn't choose and hoping for relief. It's very easy to do that. It's very easy to get focused on the dreams I have for this life. But what I'm telling you is the hope that we have is so powerful and so practical that we should invest time dreaming of eternity, right? It said in Hebrews 11 that those people didn't receive what had been promised, but instead they saw it from a distance, welcomed it from a distance. That's because they imagined what it would be like to have God in that promised land. And so I'm encouraging you to invest some time in imagination. Read Revelation 21 and 22 and spend some time thinking about what it's going to be like. It will be the fulfillment of a verse that we quote all the time, Romans 8, 28. For God works all things together for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. Donna Haikoop sent me this, and I wanted to use it here in the end. A while back, I read a story of a visiting pastor who attended a men's breakfast in the middle of a rural farming area of the country. The group had asked the older farmer, uh, decked out in bib overalls, to say grace for the morning breakfast. And this is how he started. Lord, I hate buttermilk. The visiting pastor opened one eye to glance at the farmer and wonder where this was going. The farmer loudly proclaimed, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was growing concerned. 
Without missing a beat, the farmer continued, and Lord, you know I don't care much for raw white flour. The pastor once again opened an eye to glance around the room and saw that he wasn't the only one there feeling uncomfortable. Then the, then the farmer added, but Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them, I do love warm, fresh biscuits. So Lord, when things come up that we don't like, when life gets hard, when we don't understand what you're saying to us, help us to just relax and wait until you're done mixing. It will probably be even better than the biscuits. Amen. We're headed for what we've always been longing for. And it's going to be better than the biscuits. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words and this encouragement today. Lord, I pray that you will help us to internalize them and claim the hope that we all have of the life that we're headed for. All of us who trust in you, Lord, and if we don't trust in you, if there's anyone in here, they know, Lord, you have, they have not given their lives to you. They have not made that decision, believed in their heart and said with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. They have not done that, Lord, that you will move in their hearts to do that so that we can all have this great hope to look forward to. Lord, we love you so very much. We thank you for the blessing of the book of Revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.